1: Guaranteed.
2: Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Atlanta Falcons quarterback and MVP candidate Matt Ryan and Mike Florio, the founder of Pro Football Talk and NFL analyst for NBC Sports. I asked Ryan about the difference in his game this year under offensive coordinator Kyle Shanahan.
1: He's put everybody in positions to succeed. You know, he plays to people's strengths and tries to put people in position to succeed. And that, and that's why I think you see so many people catching passes, catching touchdowns for us, is because he's putting guys in positions to be successful.
2: I asked Florio, how did a West Virginia lawyer like him get into the football media business?
0: I saw this website, NFLtalk.com. I thought I'll have to check that out. And I started to go to it. And it's like, instantly I was hooked. Hooked. And they had a a little ad at the top that they were looking for writers. And I thought, hey, what the hell? I'll throw something together and send it in.
2: Now my conversation with Atlanta Falcons quarterback, Matt Ryan. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Uh, I'm here now with Matt Ryan, the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons, the second seed in the NFC playoffs as we continue to preview the 2016 season NFL playoffs. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Happy to be on.
2: Okay. So let's just talk a little bit at first about your year. I've sensed as you've gone along, I mean, the game that you guys played where Taylor Gabriel catches two identical passes right at the line of scrimmage, and he just makes things happen and goes downfield and scores touchdowns. I just said to myself, Matt Ryan has to go to bed on Saturday night before the games and say, I have so many weapons. We could win the game with any of six or seven guys tomorrow. So as a quarterback, what is that like for you to know going into any game You've got such a multiplicity of threats.
1: It's a great feeling. It really is. I mean, when you have multiple guys who you trust uh, to make plays at any time in the game, whether it be through the pass game or the run game, it's a really comforting feeling. And, and I think it makes it makes a defense, you know, stress about all right, if you're going to take this away, we've got no problem doing this. And, and they've really got to be concerned with all facets of of our offense. And, and uh, you know, that's been fun. That's been fun to be a part of that this year.
2: You know, I'm curious, especially about Gabriel and how he just kind of appeared out of nowhere. You wouldn't necessarily think that a guy who gets cut by the Cleveland Browns could come in and do as well as he has. But I wonder... You know, to me, he's the perfect kind of guy who can play a role, and who you can find 15 snaps for in a game, and say a defense really has to account for him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I remember when we picked him up uh, after training camp in the first week he was here. I mean, the first day we went out onto the practice field and I saw him run. I said we, he's going to help us out, and I think his success has been, you know, in large part to how hard he has worked. But I think there's also the guys around him have helped that, too. I mean, when when people have to account for a lot of different people, that opens up things for Taylor, uh, and he certainly made the most of it with his opportunities.
2: Matt, I'll always think this year, looking back on this year for you, that you guys had to have grown as a team on your road trip out to Denver and Seattle, and to refresh people's memory, you went to Denver early in the season when it still looked like Denver was a legitimate 13-win Super Bowl threat, and obviously they didn't end up making the playoffs, but they were that was a really, really good team. You go out there, play very well offensively, and then you go up to Seattle, and if not for a non-pass interference call near the end of the game, you could very well have won that game too. So take me onto your team for that little road trip at the beginning of the year, and what did that mean to your team on both sides of the ball?
1: Well, I thought, it was, I thought it was huge for us. I mean, uh, you know, going on the road uh, and playing the defending, you know, Super Bowl champion uh, and, and who you mentioned was playing really, really well at the time and, and having success and playing the way that, that we were capable of and kind of controlling that game for four quarters. I thought that was huge for us. And then, you know, playing Seattle the following week, I think traveling from Denver up to Seattle and spending the week there uh, in the hotel together for the entire week, and it was just us on the road and, and not a whole lot of distraction. Uh, I, thought, I thought that really brought our team together. It was a cool opportunity for guys to spend more time than you usually would together, uh, and I think relationships became tighter as a result of that road trip, uh, and I think we came out stronger uh, as a result of, of that 10-day stretch
2: visiting with Matt Ryan on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, previewing the NFL playoffs. Matt, you've been there now since 2008, so you've just finished now, you're finishing your ninth season. What would you say, and I'll never forget the day you were drafted, I was in Atlanta the day you were drafted, and, I mean, it, this seems like so, so long ago, But I'll never forget that day. There was a segment of that city that was going to be married to Michael Vick forever. And, you know, and obviously they were trying to replace Michael Vick. I want you to look back and just tell me, if you can, whether that weighed on you at all the day you were drafted and whether you ever had any difficult moments trying to be the guy that followed Michael Vick in Atlanta.
1: Well, you know, I don't think it weighed on me necessarily draft day. Uh, I, I think you're just so excited for the opportunity. And, you know, it's such a special day to spend with your family, et cetera, that, that you don't really think about it all that much at that time. You know, but certainly when you get down and and you start getting to work and you're just answering questions nonstop about it for, you know, your first year, year and a half, uh, it's something that, that you think about. And, and for me, you know, I always felt like, I had great support around me within the organization, uh, from the coaching staff to players to the front office. Uh, The support was there in the building. And, you know, I I just felt like – Nobody was putting any added pressure on me to do any more than just, you know, play my position and do the best I could. And and that's kind of the mindset that I had uh, early on in my career was to just worry about, you know, doing my job the best I could uh, and and trying to win football games because ultimately at the end of the day – I think fans come around to winning, and uh, you know we've done a good job of that throughout my career. We've had some tough stretches, but uh, we've done some you know some some pretty good things, and hopefully we're we're trending in the right direction and and uh, can play our best football moving forward.
2: Matt, let's go to your previous deep in the playoffs opportunity when you guys played San Francisco in the championship game right in your building. Does part of you look at that day as an opportunity lost?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think anytime you're in those positions and, and you don't come out with the outcome you want, uh, you, you know, you wish you could change that. But, you know, that's uh, also a motivating thing, I think, for me moving forward is, uh, you know, you want to get back in those positions uh, and you want to give yourself another opportunity uh, because you learn so much, I think, from those experiences, good and bad. And, and, um, you, you know, so I, I think it's motivated me throughout the last couple of years to, to just do my best and try and get back in that situation, and uh, you know, understand that we're capable of making the plays when we need to.
2: So, Matt, as you look at the field right now, and I realize you're a one game at a time guy, but how do you like your chances this year? And when you look at your team, what's important for the Atlanta Falcons to win in this postseason?
1: Well, you know, I really I feel good about our team. I think we've got um, you know a team that has continued to get better as the year's gone on. I think on both sides of the ball. I think we've improved defensively. I think certainly we've gotten better as an offense. Uh, and I always think that's an important thing. I think you want to be trending in the right in the right direction, and we've been trending on improvement the entire year. So that's one thing that I'm encouraged about. Uh, and as far as you know the field, I think that. You know we have the mindset that regardless of who we go against, uh, we feel like we can play with anybody in this league and get the win any week, and so uh, you know, I feel good about our chances, but you know at the end of the day, it comes down to uh, when we have our opportunity, whoever that's going to be in two weeks, uh, just playing the way that we're capable of and not making any more of it or any less of it, uh, just doing the things that we've done all year.
2: does any part of you having gone to Boston college? look ahead and start to kind of in a sporting way fantasize about playing Tom Brady and the Patriots in the Super Bowl?
1: <laughs> That's too far down the road, uh, yeah. you, you know, to think about that. But, you know, obviously, you know, in having gone to school in, in Boston and, and watching their consistency and success, they've been uh, something to to model yourself after because their longevity and sustained success has been incredibly impressive.
2: Isn't it, Amazing to you to think of a 39 year old man to just have played a football season with 28 touchdowns and two interceptions.
1: It's impressive. I, I mean, uh, you know, Tom has has set the bar for uh, aging well in the NFL. I mean, he, he's done it <laughs> as well as anybody, and uh, you know, really is is playing at a level you know that's probably as well as he's ever played. And uh, as well as anybody's ever played, and and uh, it's been awesome to watch. But I think the one thing that you notice is how committed he is to being great every minute of every day of his life. I mean, this is it's a full time commitment, and Tom uh, has certainly you know set the bar for commitment uh, in in that aspect.
2: Finishing up with Matt Ryan of the Atlanta Falcons. So, Matt, I want to ask you about Kyle Shanahan, playing for Kyle, being coached by Kyle. And what difference you believe he's made in your game?
1: Well, I think Kyle's pushed me to become a better player. You know, I think he's challenged me in certain ways to expand uh, my game, to do some things differently than I did for a couple of years. I mean, he's pushed me to, to throw more on the run, and I think that's helped us uh, as an offense. And, and um, you know, so he's helped me become a better player. Uh, But I think he's helped our entire offense become better players. I think that's what good coaches do, and uh, he's put everybody in positions to succeed. You know, he plays to people's strengths, understands – what we have in, in our locker room, what we have on the offensive side of the ball, uh, and tries to put people in position to succeed. That. And that's why I think you see so many people catching passes, catching touchdowns for us, uh, is because he's putting uh, you know, guys in positions to be successful.
2: When he first came in, did he immediately make it a focus that he wanted you to be throwing the ball more on the run?
1: Well, you know, it was was, one of the things that that we talked about early on was, you know, I felt good about it. He said, you know, you're more athletic than than people give you credit for uh, and more athletic than I thought you were. And and I think that that can help us as an offense to – you know marry up with our run game getting you outside the pocket uh, and, and kind of making a defense defend uh, the entire field and and so uh, from an early on standpoint I think he, he you know felt like we could do it uh, and made that a point of emphasis for us to work on when we were in practice and and I think you know working on that for the last couple of years and really making that a point of emphasis has helped.
2: Matt, I'm going to ask you this one last question because you told me this a couple of years ago and I found it to be really an interesting thing. You said to me that one of the things that you try to do during the season is you try not to watch or really read about yourself, about your team. When you're away from the building, you really try to get away and do things that really kind of, you know, rest your mind a little bit from football. Do you still do that? And in this 24-7 nonstop football culture,
1: how do you do that? I still do it. I think it's become more difficult every year uh, because, like you said, the the, the nonstop attention, the 24 hours a day uh, attention that's given to football uh, makes it more difficult. Uh, You have to make an effort. I mean, I, I, I... one of the things I rely on is, is is our PR department. I mean, Brian Kearns with the Falcons does a great job for having me prepared uh, and having the information that I need, uh, going into interviews to answer questions, but then also, you know, allowing me to not worry about all the stuff. And so, you know, it, it takes an effort. I mean, I, I probably watch, you know, as many games as I can uh, and just turn the volume down a little bit. You know, oh, yeah. you, you don't really you want to listen too much, but I love watching. Um, you know, so that's one thing I do. But then I also... You know, one of the things I do during the season, uh, in all honesty, is is find different TV shows to kind of uh, catch up on. And, and this year, my wife and I have been going through shameless uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and watching that. <laughs> and so that's one of the things you do. You know, you can go home and, and turn that on and watch an episode or two and, and, and then kind of not worry about what else is going on.
2: You know, Andrew Luck told me in training camp this year, he says, you got to watch The Man in the High Castle. And I said, wow, Man in the High Castle. And I looked it up, and it's about what would have happened if Nazis won in World I, War
1: II. And, and he said, it's an incredible show. And yeah, we have guys in our locker room talking about that. They talk oh, about that, that quite right? a bit. That's, that's got to be one of my next uh, my next binge-watching. <laughs>
2: yeah. Hey, well, anyway, Matt, really, really appreciate you taking the time and wish you all the best. And, uh, I, you know, it's really been fun to watch how you have really kind of grown your game and how your team offensively has grown. You're a really, really fun offense to watch every Sunday. I always look forward to it.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Peter.
2: Take care. It's the MMQB podcast. SeatGeek is the smart way to buy and sell tickets for live events. The NFL playoffs are here. Each game is a can't-miss experience. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to find tickets for the last few games of the season. There's nothing like being in the stadium for the biggest plays of the year. With SeatGeek, it's never been easier to get the seats you want for a great value. I know. Before SeatGeek worked with me, I used SeatGeek. I'm a big baseball fan. I got SeatGeek tickets out the wazoo, especially with the New York Mets, kind of my adopted team in New York. Anyway, with SeatGeek, you always get the best deal on every ticket. SeatGeek price compares for you by searching multiple ticket sites. Prices can vary depending on where you shop, but SeatGeek will always find you the lowest available price. Now, pay attention to this next part because it's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier than that to make money off the MMQB and off of SeatGeek. So download the free SeatGeek app today and enter promo code MMQB. Now my conversation with Mike Florio, the founder of Pro Football Talk. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm with Mike Florio, the owner, founder, poobah of Pro Football Talk, which really has taken the NFL media world by storm in the last few years. And also Mike is a compatriot of mine. We work together at NBC Sports, Football Night in America, so, we are here after the playoff game in the wild card weekend. We're sitting here at a hotel in Greenwich, Connecticut, and talking about Mike's life. And anyway, Mike, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Peter, my pleasure. All right. So, you've got a really, really weird story and a weird existence. <laughs> And I'm—I mean—and it has nothing to do with your uh, love of Seinfeld or anything like that, which is really weird in and of itself. Because of all the people in the United States, you're one of the ten that know the most about Seinfeld. Cod right, Caught right. Seinfeld fall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I just want to start off by asking you, and we're going to get into your story. But do you ever sit back and wonder, oh my God, how in the world did I get here? I'm on NBC, I talk about the NFL, you know, 19 million people watch me. I got this website that everybody in the league cares about, that Roger Goodell reads, and everything. So, I mean, do you ever wonder, how in the world did this happen?
0: I try not to think about it, because my concern is, if I stop and think about it too much, it will all begin to crumble. So my focus has always been, just keep plowing forward. Don't look in the rearview mirror. Don't look to the side. Just look ahead because you don't belong here. So the minute you start wondering why you're here and how you got here is the moment it's all going to come crashing to a halt. So thank you for putting that seed in my brain.
2: <laughs> uh, with Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. So, Mike, um, let's go back to the beginning just for a second. And, everybody, we're going to get to current events. We'll get to what coach is going to sign where and blah, blah, blah. But as you know from the year of doing this podcast, I always try to find out some things about people and why they are where they are. So I want to start and ask you, you're a lawyer in West Virginia, and you start to think, man, I'm not sure if I really want to do this for the rest of my life. So take me into your decision-making process, and how did you birth this baby? It wasn't really that I was looking
0: for a way out of the practice of law. The one thing I've learned over the years is that the people who do practice are always fantasizing about ways they can get out because it is a very stressful existence. When you have other people's interests riding upon your abilities, and it's— This is different from being a doctor. I always tell people, if you're a surgeon, you go in and you do the surgery and you're done. And it's very important and it's very critical during those moments that you're doing the surgery, but you sew up the patient and it's over and you move on to the next one. When you're a lawyer and you're handling someone's case, you carry it with you every day, every night, especially as you get ready for trial. And I always wanted to do trial law. I wanted to be a litigator. I wanted that adrenaline rush that comes from being in that moment where you have to know what you're going to say. You have to be ready for whatever happens. You have to think on your feet. You have to embrace that moment. And it really is an intoxicating feeling when you're in that moment. But the thing is, to get to that moment, you have to put hour and hour and hour and hour of research and preparation and thought into it. And you carry it around with you everywhere you go. You're always thinking about it. You wake up in the middle of the night and you have an idea And you can never get away from it. And so for me, I enjoyed it. It was rewarding. But when I found something else I could do, it mainly was just a hobby. And it was a hobby that grew and grew and grew and grew. But when I started, I never envisioned that it would be anything that would allow me to stop practicing law. Although once it got to the point where I could stop practicing law, I welcomed it just because of the overall toll that practicing law, especially when you practice law alone like I did the last nine or ten years that I practiced. It can really take a toll on you physically, emotionally, and mentally when you're doing it alone and you're doing it all the time. And it gave me a nice avenue out of it, not that I was necessarily looking for an avenue out when I got in.
2: So when you went to college, you ended up going to law school because you wanted to be a lawyer. You never thought, hey, you know what, I'd like to be a sports writer. Oh, my God, it was the last thing I ever would have imagined. Here's what happened. When I was growing up... In West Virginia. In
0: West Virginia... I was always very good at math and science. Without question. Top percentile and all the standardized testing, advanced, always very good in math and science. And so as I got closer to college age, what are you gonna do? Well you're good at math and science. You need to get into some sort of a mathematic or scientific discipline. How about engineering? And I was seventeen. I didn't know what I wanted to do.
2: So uh, Did you feel forced by your parents to get into one discipline or other?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, my parents were the children of immigrants, and I think in their mind, assimilation into the American society was, for them, getting a job, getting a house, having a family, putting your kids in college, right? That was the big deal, you put them in college. And when they get to college, they pick a discipline, they get a degree, they go work in that field And that's it. For 45 years. That's it, right? yeah, yeah. And that's success. That's assimilation into American society. And for me, I I just, I wasn't equipped at the age of 17 to say to them, no, I don't want to do this, because I didn't have an alternative. You can't just go in and say, no, I don't want to study engineering. But
2: you know what? Your kids now can say that. And all kids now say that. But you know what? I'll just tell you this. But they have an
0: alternative. I had I had no idea what my alternative would have been. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I just did that. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to be seventeen and everything that went along with it. I didn't want to think about the future. I didn't want to get dragged into something and I I was petrified, Peter, at the idea of getting on that track where You get your degree, you get a job, and you stay at that place for 35 to 40 years, because that's the way the world was in the early 80s. People got a job, and they never left, and I really was petrified at the prospect of of living that kind of a linear existence. And I always was interested in other... But but at that
2: age, I was too young to really recognize that feeling. Did you know at 17 you wanted to be a lawyer?
0: Oh, no, absolutely not. I'll tell you when I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I was getting close to graduating... Where did you go? I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And I went into the general engineering program as a freshman. And I remember at the end of the first year, you had to pick a specific discipline. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was just process of elimination. And the smallest discipline was metallurgical engineering and material science. So I thought, well, what the hell? I'll do that. I mean, that's the thought that went into it. What the hell? I'll do that. And there was a separate degree in the engineering program that you could add to it. It was engineering and public policy. And my advisor in that, you know, one thing leads to another my senior year, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do when I graduate. And she mentioned to me one day, law school. And I thought, well, I don't want to stay in college and get a political science degree or pre-law or whatever. She's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You can go to law school with any degree. And that was the moment. It was early 1987. That was the moment it clicked. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And for all I knew at age 21 in early 1987 was, I'm happy to do that for my career. I'll do that for 40 years if that's how long I live. And and so once I knew that, there was a very... Where did you go to law school? I went to West Virginia. Yeah. But once I knew, it was like it all fell together. I felt like I'd been searching for three years, four years, what I want to be, what I want to do. And once that happened for me...
2: I just knew that that was... You know, you get what that kind, feeling. What kind of law did, did you think you wanted to do? I, I
0: wanted to... You know, I mean, all you know is what you see on TV and what you see in the movies. I wanted to be in court. There was something about it that was fascinating to me. The yeah. adrenaline, the intensity, the passion, the everything that goes into it. The everything. Everything. And you, you are the, the writer, the director, the producer, the actor, and you're making up a lot of it on the fly. And you're right... There, and there's no safety net... And you never know what's going to happen. And you can plan all you want. But once it starts and the other side has its ideas of what the truth is. And what happens so often in a case, any case. You could hear one side tell their story. You hear the other side tell their story. And you think to yourself, is this two different cases? That's how sharp the disagreements are in so many of these. And that I, I didn't know that it was going to be like that. I just thought this is an opportunity to do something that feels you know, that has that real challenge to it and the interpersonal skills that you need to have. And, and, you know, at that age, I was kind of trying to push myself consciously or not away from math and science. Learn how to write. Learn how to speak on your feet. You know, kind of come out of the shell a little bit. I was very shy and reserved when I was younger. So, as I pushed myself away from the things that I was always good at into something else, that, for me, it just—it was kind of like a neat feeling, like, "Hey, I don't have to be pigeonholed into the guy who's good at math and science. I can develop other skills." So that was—that was the moment, early
2: 1987, when it all came together uh, with Mike Florio, the founder of Pro Football Talk. So, Mike, what was your best moment? What was your worst moment in a courtroom? My worst moment was—you lost a case. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I lost a
0: case. All right, I lost a case that I thought I was going to win. I thought I had a great case. I got a great case for you on L.A. Law. Remember that one, Costanza? <laughs> oh, I got a great case. It was, it, was, it was not quite as bad as the case of the, the cat that George killed. But, you know, I ended up practicing at a couple of large firms from the defense perspective in civil lawsuits, representing companies that had been sued. And in 2000, I left the firm that I was practicing with and I started my own firm. And I decided I was going to represent individuals. And I was going to represent individuals who have been wronged in some way by companies, typically larger companies, because that's one of the factors. If you are going to represent individuals who sue a company, it's helpful that the company has resources that they can settle the case or pay the judgment. You don't want to be representing individuals who sue companies that have no money, because then all you carry around is a piece of paper that is essentially worthless. So I had a case against a large retailer who shall remain nameless. Macy's. (laughs) <laughs> no. But a, a large retailer that has a store in pretty much every city in the world. And, and I, mean, I thought it was a really good case. I busted my butt on it. And I thought this is a great case. And I proved how they wronged my client. And, this, and it all fell together just right. And, this is, and, and I am going to be vindicated. I've been working on this thing for months. And the jury goes back. And the worst thing, and the thing that I grew to hate, is waiting for the jury. Because you don't know how long it's going to be. It could be five minutes.
2: Do you sit in the courtroom? You or, sit in the
0: courtroom, yeah. and you can mill about. Or, you know, if it's long enough, they'll tell you to go get lunch. And they've, they've I don't know, did we have cell phones back in those days? There were cell phones. 2001, this is when this happened. They contact you if something happened. And so, but you just wait. And it to the point where sometimes you just want it to be over with. Yeah, I'll take the loss. I just yeah. want it to be over with. Yeah. I can't take this feeling any longer. But sitting there in the courtroom, and you hear the knock on the door when the jury returns the verdict... And what typically happens is, you know, because on TV they have the four-person read the verdict and it's all dramatic. A lot of judges will call the lawyers up to the bench and show the verdict form that shows, you know, the outcome of the case.
2: Is that what happened in this case?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, so I walk up and I see the the form and I'm just like... Oh. I got I to gotta figure out how I'm going to walk back to the council table without collapsing. <laughs> and, and it was just, it was such a your an, client at the table? He was at the table. And I can't remember if I told him before or after they read it. Because you just, you just have to, you have to compose yourself. And you come back and you sit down. And we lost the case. And it just, it was a horrible feeling. So that was the worst day. That was, and that was my 36th birthday. What a birthday present that was. Wow. It was June 8th night of 2001. And that was the worst moment. Uh, but the best. Do you mom-
2: feel like at that moment that you have failed your client? Or yes. Do you feel that that jury is effed up, and I didn't fail my client; they failed my client. The
0: natural inclination for any lawyer is to blame somebody. Blame else.
2: somebody else, right? And that's the Trump of, syndrome.
0: And what happened was in a state like West Virginia, where, and it used to be this way. I think it's changed since I've gotten out of the profession because it has swung hard to the right. It used to be that the court system was perceived as too liberal, as too willing to redistribute wealth. And what would happen is the lawyers who represent the big companies, instead of explaining to their clients, we lost the case because I did a bad job. It would be the judge is corrupt. The jury is corrupt. It's always something other than what you did. So yeah, the temptation is to say, Peter, I did my job well. It's their fault. The jury didn't understand it. The jury didn't get it. And I probably gave into that temptation initially, but if you're ever going to improve, you have to be willing to say, what did I do that I could have done differently? What should I do differently next time around? And is it just one of those cases where six people who happen to be seated in this jury disagreed with you? And if it were a different jury, maybe they would agree with you. And that's part of the risk that you take when you try a case. And the only reason I didn't have any regret about that case, there wasn't any significant settlement offer that was ever made. Now, and, and I never had a case where we walked away from something that I felt like my client should have taken. You know, the easiest cases for me are the ones where they make an offer and I can tell my client is satisfied. Okay, fine. You know what? I'd like to try this case. Maybe we could do better. Maybe we could do a lot better. There's a reason they're offering a settlement. But if my client was satisfied with it, I was typically happy to say, that's fine with me because I had plenty of other cases to work on at any given time. And if anything, it was a relief to be able to not focus on the case that I had been obsessed with as we got ready for trial and could move on to something else.
2: Where's the germination of the idea then for Pro Football Talk?
0: Here's what happened. It was... What year? 2000. I was reading the USA Today at lunch. I used to go to Subway every day for lunch. Every day. I'd get the USA Today every day. And I would sit in the same booth. I'm a creature of habit. And at the time, that was the habit. And I read an item in USA Today about a website called sportstalk.com, specifically nfltalk.com, April of 2000. And up until that point, I was very unfamiliar with the internet. We had AOL. We had the old squeaky, squally modem. And what I would do is I would stay within the confines of the content that was available through AOL. I didn't venture beyond that. And so I would read there was sporting news content that was available on the AOL. And so I'd read the AOL sporting news content. And I saw this website, NFLtalk.com. I thought, I'll well, have to check that out. And I started to go to it. And it's like, instantly I was hooked, hooked. And June of that year, they had a a little ad at the top that they were looking for writers. And I thought, hey, I, what the hell? I'll throw something together and send it in. Threw something together and send it in. A couple of days later, they contact me and They said, yeah, we'd like you to write a couple of columns a week. So it's like, well, fine. What's it pay? Nothing. Okay. That's fine. It's fun. I'll do it. It's fun. What the hell? And it's one of those things where you start doing it and you like it. And hey, I'm not bad at this. And yeah, they're not paying me, but it's kind of fun. It's a nice little hobby. I kind of enjoy it. And I always had this vague sense that, you know what, if you keep working at this, you never know where it's going to go. I'll just keep doing it. And every once in a while, You know, because your spouse is always the one that looks out for you in these situations. They're always very sensitive to the possibility that you're getting screwed by somebody. So you get the question like, well, now, wait a minute. What is it you're doing and how hard are you working and what are they paying you? And it's like, yeah, I understand, but that's okay. I I just, I want to keep doing it. I appreciate you looking out for me, but I just want to keep doing it. And it was one of those things where they give me a little bit more. They'd give me a little bit more. I do a little bit more. I enjoy it. And I still wasn't getting paid. And it all culminated, Peter, in early 2001 sportstalk.com, which was a collection of websites, NFL Talk, NBA Talk. It's set up a lot like the NBC Sports Talk blogs are now, where it's one for every sport. They ran out of money. It imploded. And ESPN came in and bought the carcass. And one thing leads to another, and they hired me to do like a daily update through the ESPN.com insider service. That all happened in May of 2001, and that's when everything changed, now, that's a different chapter in this journey altogether, because at that point, I'm practicing law full-time, and I'm doing this from 5 a.m. till 10 a.m. every morning, and I don't think ESPN.com ever knew that I was practicing law full-time, but that's when it all changed. That's when I started to get paid, and that's when I really knew that if I keep at this, you know, one of these days down the road, that's all
2: I'm going to be doing. This is the MNQB Podcast. QB Podcast. I want to ask my listeners a quick question. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these four letters, MMQB. That's easy enough, right? Now keep listening and I'll tell you how to get these free meals. Look, we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission, they make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients, all right to your door. New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within a year. Variety is the spice of life. Choose your meals from a variety of recipes or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Now comes that part about the three free meals I was telling you about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, with free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash mmqb. Think about it, three free meals just by adding in mmqb. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Don't wait. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash mmqb. Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook. With Mike Flurry of Pro Football Talk here in the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. So when does it become your job? What year?
0: Well, let me fast forward just a few months into 2001. I had a six-month contract at ESPN.com. And in October, they offered me a one-year contract. And I had to decide what I was going to do. And at that point, I was fascinated by the possibility of doing my own thing. And think about what was going on at the time in the world. October 2001, not long after 9-11, and in the aftermath of that, I think the general feeling was nobody knew what the hell was going to happen next or how long any of us had. It really brought our mortality front and center for everyone. And I thought, you know, I'm working 18 to 20 hours a day, getting up at 5 a.m. to work for ESPN.com, then practicing law as late as I needed to any given day, and lather rinse repeat every single day. Do I really want to keep doing it like this or do I want to if I'm going to do this separate thing with football, have my own way of doing it? And it was in about October of 2001 that I decided I want to do my own site. I want to do my own thing. $500 and $50 a month for the web hosting What's fi- what, what's to 500? set up the website it okay, was $500 right, yeah. to set up the website and $50 a month for the web hosting fee and profootballtalk.com was born November 1 of
2: 2001 and there wasn't any I'll tell you, that's amazingly long I would have if you would ask me to guess I would have guessed 2006 that's a, you've been alive for 15 years 15 years is when it yeah. launched now
0: we spent several years two or three posts a day I used to not post anything on weekends. I mean, it's hard to imagine that as competitive and as flooded as the internet is now with information, and there's that constant pressure to have another story, another story, another story. Back in 2002, 2003, there was by no means comprehensive coverage of the NFL at profootballtalk.com. There would be three stories in the morning... I had a collection of links and I called them one liners then and I call them one liners now. And now, what we try to do every day is have 32, one per team. Used to be 10 to 15, maybe. And Saturdays and Sundays wouldn't necessarily post anything. And I remember it was January 1 of 2004. I said, and it was the only New Year's resolution I ever made, and it's the only one I ever followed. Starting today, I'm going to post new content. Every single day at PFT. And I challenged myself to have something new every single day. And it wasn't. It's even then. We started making money in 2006. That's when Sprint came along. Ted Moon from Sprint contacted me out of the blue and wanted to work out some sort of a deal where Sprint would be the presenting sponsor of ProFootballTalk.com. And I was like, are you kidding me? And one thing leads to another. And that was the moment when that crystallized, when that deal was done. That's when I knew, at some point, this is all I'm going to be doing. And it's just a matter of transitioning between then and whatever point I could transition away from practicing law. And I started to consciously take on fewer cases. One of the one of the benefits... When did of, you
2: stop doing law?
0: Well, it was part of the condition of joining NBC. That was one of the things they asked for. You need to stop practicing law. So July 1 of 2009 is when PFT aligned with NBC. And at that point, I had a handful of cases... I worked them until they were done. And so by early 2010, I was done completely.
2: Mike, why do you think you have become fairly significant when you have no background in journalism, you have no background? You once told me we were sitting in our room at NBC one night and you said, Peter, I'm not in your little boys club. I said that? You did say that. Yeah, you did say that one night. And I don't think it was to say, "Peter, you're a bag of crap. I think it was to say that, but you are a bag of crap. Yeah, I do know that <laughs> but but I think it was to say honestly that I am an outsider, and I kind of like being an outsider.
0: I think that's true. I accept the fact that that you know there are certain aspects of how I got into the business that will make me. It will cause me to be viewed differently by the people who entered the business in a more traditional way, who went to journalism school, who had the appropriate apprenticeships, who worked at real publications, who have a broader base of experience and cover different sports and are in locker rooms all the time. I mean, I understand that. And I just embrace it, that I am different and nothing is going to change it. And I'm just going to keep doing things the way that I've always done them because it's worked. And if that means I'm never going to have a vote for the AP awards or be on the Hall of Fame selection committee, I'm fine with that. And, you know, part of our Do attitude— Do you think it
2: would be fun someday to be on the Hall of Fame no, selection committee? No, no. Why? You know, no, because— Why? It's, Because it's a thankless effing job. It's a thankless job.
0: <laughs> and let me tell you, I've got no desire to sit in a room for nine hours the day before the Super Bowl and listen to a bunch of sports writers argue about who should or shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I have no desire to be part of that. Wait a
2: second, wait a second, wait a second. But you have no problem with saying that this is a stupid decision or that, oh, they made the wrong decision here. You have no problem being in the peanut gallery. But, and again, I don't necessarily think that you're wrong because there are some times where I think exactly that way too. But if you really, really care about something why wouldn't you care to say I'd like to sit in judgment of these football players? Well,
0: the problem is when you have kind of made your niche by being brutally honest and criticizing anything and everything, you piss a lot of people off. So do I think that Barry Wilner or anyone at the AP is ever going to say, hey, we'd like to give you one of the 50 spots on this panel that you've been criticizing for the last 15 years for valid reasons, but you've been critical of us. So, you know, we're not going to give you a spot. And the same thing with the Hall of Fame. I was very concerned when we hired Darren Gantt that he was going to get strong-armed off of the committee because we've criticized the selection process. We've criticized this, we've criticized that. But I'll tell you what, in recent years, I've come to understand how difficult it is. I think from getting to know you and having conversations with you about how difficult it is, it is an inherently disorderly process of figuring out who gets into the Hall of Fame. And it's not just apples and oranges. It's apples and oranges and car batteries and old shoes. I mean, how do you assimilate all these different positions and decide who gets in? And there are certain aspects of it that I understand from a pragmatic standpoint, the waiting line, the wide receiver waiting line, for example, that some of the selectors don't want to talk about, but it's there. It's real. And that's the one criticism I have now. Just admit that there's a, a waiting line for receivers. We know it. Just admit it. Don't trash Terrell Owens in an effort to justify not putting him in instead of Marvin Harrison. Just say there's a waiting line. Yeah, maybe T.O. was better than Marvin Harrison, but Marvin's been waiting longer, and we need to have some sort of order here so people don't get lost in the crowd. Yeah, but the
2: thing is, Mike, here's the reason why... I've never, I mean, I'm not saying there's 48 voters. 47 might think there's a waiting line. I'm going to tell you why I don't think there's a waiting line. It's very simple. That my job when I walk in there the day before the Super Bowl every year is to pick, there's 15 modern era finalists, and my job is to pick the five best of that 15. But that's not always what happens. That, well, but I, I'm just saying, I'm one of 48. But, but let me just say one am thing. I'm saying even th- but even then, even though
0: you go in there with the intent of selecting the best five of that group, sometimes,
2: sometimes other factors come into play, and that's okay. You're right, because w- the year that Warren Moon got in, I didn't think it, Warren Moon was going to be in my final five, but at the end of the discussion, we must have talked about Warren Moon for 50 minutes. I said, you know what? Warren Moon belongs in the Hall of Fame. But I'm going to say one thing about receivers. Okay, look, I voted scars and all for Terrell Owens, okay? And in my opinion, Terrell Owens absolutely should have been one of the five last year. However, there were some very reasonable arguments that everyone knows what they are. Okay, because we can't talk about what goes on in that room, so I'm not going to. But there are some very reasonable arguments. If you're going to say that Michael Irvin is a leader, and Michael Irvin, uh, you know, by his influence over Alvin Harper and by being the strongest personality in a Dallas Cowboys locker room that had a lot of very questionable personalities, and Jimmy Johnson asked him to ride herd on a lot of guys in that locker room, You can't just determine somebody's Hall of Fame status by what happens for three hours on a Sunday. It has to also be what happens in the locker room, what happens on that team. And so Terrell Owens has been a jerk in some of the places he's been.
0: How does stabbing a guy in the neck with scissors factor into the assessment
2: of Michael Irvin? He is certainly not without flaws. (laughs) <laughs> and
0: that is a heck of a way to explain a guy who stabbed a teammate in the neck I mean, with scissors. For all the yeah. flaws of Terrell Owens, I'm aware of no yeah. stabbing of anyone in the neck yeah. with scissors. And isn't it yeah. funny how we're not allowed to talk about Michael Irvin stabbing a guy in the neck with scissors, even though he did it, and there's no disputing but, that
2: he did it? And I'm not, I'm not saying but. I'm not saying but. I'm, I'm just saying that our job, in essence, and I got my whatever in a ringer over the whole Darren Sharper thing, okay? But... My job is not to say what happened at two o'clock in the morning six hours after a football game or in the off season. And again, honestly, I don't want our jobs to be that. And if they are gonna be that, I want a list of crimes. And I want a list of crimes and then I want a line of demarcation with those crimes in which we then say if you're guilty of one of the following crimes one of the following felonies you can never go in the pro football hall of fame I
0: think it's more know it when you see it though I think that's what the test needs you to be You cannot
2: do. ask 48 unique individuals to say do whatever you think
0: you can't do it I think part of the problem too right. is, I think part of the problem too is Peter and you and I've had this discussion before if you start including off-field behavior now as a disqualifying or at least limiting or delaying factor you got a bunch of guys who already got in without that
2: state agreed i don't think you should do it at all i think that we are not policemen we're not fbi agents i mean we we are people who are judging football careers and that's why i don't want to get involved in that and if darren sharper is the best safety of all time he ought to be in the hall of fame sorry kill me
0: here's the problem i have with terrell owens last year and this came from gary myers who was in studio with Ross Tucker. Ross was subbing for Dan Patrick. And Gary offered up a very strong explanation as to why Terrell Owens should not have gotten in and how he was a locker room cancer and five teams couldn't wait to get rid of him. And while listening to Gary, my conclusion was, well, he should never get in that. This isn't a matter of, we're letting Marvin Harrison in before him. The way Gary was explaining it, my reaction was, "Well, Gary, but, you should never vote for him to get in. And, right. and I don't feel like that's where this is going. I feel like it was justification for picking Marvin Harrison over Terrell Owens. And now this year, it'll be Terrell Owens, Owens over Isaac Bruce. There are brainer between those two.
2: There are some people who, in my opinion, and remember, Terrell Owens also was the king of the drops when he played. He dropped a lot of passes. But I, I'm, I'm still saying I would vote for the guy. But just remember one thing, that there's 48 people and maybe some of them will never vote for Terrell Owens. And I would agree with you. If a guy is passionate and adamant, okay, so I've not voted for Terrell Davis. And I'm probably not going to vote for him this year. But in my opinion, I think that there are things with the Hall of Fame committee, and I want to get onto one other thing before we go. But there's things with the Hall of Fame committee that, in my opinion, you said it before. It's not apples and orange; it's apples and oranges and car batteries. It's all so different. I had somebody from Jacksonville, a writer, Gene Fournette, call me this week and say, "What do you think of Tony Baselli's chances? And what do you think of Brian Dawkins' chances?" And and so we were talking about other guys. And one of the things that we ended up talking about was limited career. And so I said, this is going to be a real tough thing because Tony Baselli had six great years. And his greatness was there for all to see. And when I say great years, Mike, I once covered a game with Derek Thomas against Tony Baselli, right after Derek Thomas had some humongous game, and everybody said, man, this guy's the next Lawrence Taylor. And he went to Jacksonville the next week, and he never came – he never sniffed the quarterback. He never sniffed Mark Brunel because Tony Baselli just slaughtered him or that whole game. And so that sticks in my mind. So when I see that, I say, okay, I know he had a Dwight Stevenson-type career. I know he had a short career. And people will say, well, geez, then what about, what about Terrell Davis? Well, Terrell Davis had four years. And, you know, four years is different than six. Plus, it can't escape from my mind that all the running backs that followed Terrell Davis all were 12, 13, 1500-yard rushers, the next two or three of them. And so I, I just – that's all a collective thing. And I might be wrong. But it's hard for me to vote for a guy who was great for four years. What's going to anyway. happen
0: with Terrell Davis is that as the game evolves away from the workhorse running back and there are fewer and fewer guys who are rushing for 1,500, 1,600, 1,800 yards per year, you're going to get to the point where you're looking for running backs to put in. And I think that's how he's going to get in. He
2: might. And, and you know, if he does, I always say this, you know, like I, I never was a Lynn Swan guy. <laughs> 226th
0: all-time, 226th all-time in receiving yardage. He had
2: 336 catches in his career. He averaged like 2.7 catches a game in his career. And I know he was the ballet guy in the Super Bowl, and I get it. And I, and I think he was great at his time. But if you ask me one guy right now, one guy, it's Cliff Branch. Cliff Branch is totally deserving because he was as acrobatic and as great as Lynn Swan was, be that as it may. Mike, let's move on to one last thing. Yeah, and and let me
0: just put a bow on this, because we started down this path because I was explaining how I would never want to be part of that committee, (laughs) and this last 15 minutes has reconfirmed I never want to be part of that
2: committee. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. You're right about that. Okay, Mike, so I want you to talk about what it's like for you to be sort of the burr in the saddle. And whether you kind of enjoy that, whether you view that in some ways as kind of your duty. And then tell me about what you think of the NFL media. Well, I like exposing BS because
0: I can do it in a very organic and authentic way. I get upset when I think that someone is lying to me and to the world generally. And I see it. I, I can't believe they're trying to get away with this. So I become motivated to expose it. And I think that taps into what I did for 18 years practicing law, because you're constantly trying to expose someone's BS, whether it's the other lawyer, whether it's a witness, whoever it is, you're trying to expose it and explain to someone why so-and-so is full of crap. And so when I sense that someone is lying, I get very motivated to prove it. And not to call them a liar, but to systematically prove why what they're saying isn't true. And I don't know if I feel like I have a duty for that. I mean, my audience enjoys that. All right, give I, me, my give
2: duty me, is to my audience. Give me an example. Does one stick out in your mind? Oh, absolutely. Give the, me one.
0: The moment that I decided I was no longer going to accept anything that the, the NFL, as in the league office, says at face value, and that was the bounty scandal. When they enlisted Mary Joe White to be air quotes, independent to provide this review of the case and give her assessment. And it's obvious that she's being bought and paid for by the league. She was propagating the league's version under this patina of independence. When they were selling the notion that Anthony Hargrave supposedly was saying on the sidelines, Bobby, give 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 me me my money." money. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. And that they were insistent that it was Anthony Hargrave who said, Bobby, give me my money. And they went all in on that point. And when you see the video and you watch it and you realize, at best, it's inconclusive that Anthony Hargrave said, give me my money. That was when the light went off for me. That's when I realized that in many ways they were full of crap on the bounty scandal. And I could go on and on about the bounty scandal. It was a cultural issue, as Paul Tagliabue explained in the ruling overturning the discipline imposed on the Saints, that it was a cultural problem, and the way you deal with a cultural problem isn't to find one culprit and nail them, but it's to say like like Pete Rosell did with steroids. Hey, we have a problem here. We're not going to discipline anybody. You got one year to clean up. After that, if you do it, we're going to get you because I think a lot of teams had bounty scandals, and they didn't want to go down that rabbit hole.
2: Okay, I do understand that, but don't you think that Greg Williams was doing something in the Saturday night meetings. Oh, Don't th- you think that Greg Williams was essentially causing people to go after, quote, go for the head? You know, I, I think he was talking about that with Frank Gore, right? You know, I forget. That what was he in early said, but, 2011. It was the right. night
0: before the game between Against the, Saints, the f- and Saints and the 49ers, the 49ers. Yeah. yeah. Here's what I think. I think Greg Williams for years had been doing things like that. And the moment that the bounty scandal was unveiled by the nfl that they had been investigating this and here are all the penalties or when it was a late friday in march of 2012 right after that players who played for greg williams elsewhere started to come forward and say he did the same thing here whether it was buffalo washington tennessee and the nfl's response was to look at that rabbit hole and plug it with cement and move on they did not want to expose the extent to which other teams may have done the same thing because at a certain point it makes the NFL across the board But look I would corrupt. also
2: I would also make this point to you though okay the NFC championship game New Orleans Minnesota where I just know this I covered the Baltimore Pittsburgh playoff game in 2008 where I thought somebody was going to die where Phil Simms came into the men's room at halftime of that game and saw me at twin urinals And he said, man, I'm sure glad I'm not playing anymore. Look at this thing out there. I mean, it was terrible. And this thing, I mean, I will be shocked. I'll be shocked if you ever gave sodium pentothal to the guys who were rushing Brett Favre that day and they said that they weren't trying to hurt him.
0: But here's the thing. That incentive is already there. You're trying to get to the Super Bowl. So if you knock the key players off the field for the opposing team – there is a benefit above and no beyond question. $500 but in if an you envelope. Have a
2: coach, if you have a coach who's telling you, injure Brett Favre, that's bad. Not only is it bad for football today, but it's bad that if any mother in America ever hears that— then they're not going to let their kid play football ever. That's why they made such a big deal about it, Peter.
0: I would submit to you that it had been happening in the NFL for decades. It was part of the game. If you injure the key players on the opposing team, you benefit. And a lot of times you don't have to say it. It's implicit in the game. But can't the game be improved? Oh, yeah! Can't, it, can't we stop doing that? Oh, absolutely. But the way to stop doing it isn't to say, New Orleans Saints, we're going to stigmatize you. We're going to take your coach away for a year. We're going to take draft picks away from you. The way to stop it is to go to everybody privately. Just like an, another scandal that came up a couple of years ago that made me even more dubious about <laughs> That's anything the NFL question. says. Instead of making a big deal about it, get everybody together when they meet quarterly and say... Hey,
2: we have reason to believe that this is happening. It stops now. Okay, so let's go. We're gonna finish now and we're gonna talk about Deflate Gate. And I really wanted to talk about who is gonna get what job, but I really think as we sit here right now, you and I would be both sort of kind of guessing in part because we don't know if Bill O'Brien's going to be out there. We don't know. I, you know what? Now I don't think any more that Nick Saban's going to be out there, at least this year. But So let's forego the coach talk, and let's talk about Deflategate, because I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. Uh, the day after the uh, Ted Wells report came out, I was a guest on the CBS This Morning show with you know Gail King and Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose, that and, horrible
0: Charlie Rose. And, <laughs> I love That's Charlie
2: That's Rose. That's an office. That's
0: an yeah. that horrible right. Charlie Rose. Yeah. But, grandma, but, but anyway, grandma said that.
2: Anyway, we're you know, I'm I'm there and I'm gonna be interviewed on that. And I started to think I had read most of of this thing the previous day, and I just kept thinking, thinking, thinking. You know what this is? This is the NFL has just killed an ant with a steam shovel. It's just, you know, they've killed an ant with with you know with far too much force. So I went on and I and I said that, and I honestly felt and I feel to this day, after reading that report, that Mike Florio, the lawyer had to read that report and be outraged by it because even though the NFL does not have to prove anything beyond a big reasonable doubt, the NFL, it just has to be 51-49. That's all it has to be. So in other words, when I read that and when I read the report and when you average out the 11 footballs that the Patriots had – You know, and they were done by two gauges. And when you average them out, they're right at the low end of what Ted Wells thought would have been admissible. Anyway, I want to hear what you think about the Brady suspension and the Wells report as a whole. When the Wells
0: report came out, Peter, the first thing I did was I searched it for the raw PSI numbers that were obtained from the Patriots footballs because we had the initial reports, both Chris Mortensen and you had the initial reports of 11 or 12 footballs being two pounds under or something to that effect. A few weeks after that, and I think it was specifically the day of the Super Bowl, Ian Rappaport of NFL Media reported that most of the balls were just within a few clicks of 12.5 PSI. That was his term, a few clicks. And that maybe some of the balls were a pound, but most of them were within a few clicks or something like that. And what I did at that point, because we had a five-hour pregame show for Super Bowl, and I had been getting information from people, and I you don't want to out your sources, but I had been getting information from people who knew what was going on about where it was going to go from there. And I got multiple people on the phone during that five-hour pregame show, people who should know... And would have had reason to get the truth out. Let's get the truth out. I mean, the NFL disputes false reports all the time. If there's a false report out there about how low these footballs were below the minimum, let's get the truth out there. And I was literally begging people who were in position to know the numbers during that Super Bowl pregame. We're on the tell board. me the numbers. Tell I me, remember. Just tell we me the there. numbers. Yeah. Let's get the numbers out there. Surely you have the numbers. And they gave me the runaround. And that was the moment. And you know when you're getting the runaround. That was a moment I said, okay, fine. The minute this Ted Wells report is done, the first thing I'm doing is looking for those PSI numbers. Let's see what they really are. Because they were in line with what I had been told. What I had been told is that most of them were around a pound under. And I have believed to this day that what happened was the complaint came in. They went in, and they tested the footballs, and nobody that was involved in that process had any idea. Any idea idea about the ideal gas
2: law? Any idea. Nobody knows that. Nobody
0: knew about (laughs) it, right? And so they presumed the worst, and they worked backward to prove it. And
2: no one will ever convince me otherwise that that's not what happened. I think that's right. I really think that's right. You know why I think that's right, Mike? Because someone involved in this investigation called someone who's a good friend of his, on the way home that evening from Gillette Stadium and said, this is terrible, this is awful, the Patriots cheated, this is a horrible thing, it's awful for the integrity of the game, blah, 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 blah. And I know at the time, if you and I were going in and we knew that the minimum— that a ball could be tested at in PSI would be 12.5. And we would have no idea that weather, that humidity, that rain, that anything would cause a football to lose PSI during the game. I, I, but
0: see, that's a th- I, I, I'm an engineer. That's the first thing I thought of, Peter. PV equals NRT, the ideal gas law. If you go back in our stories, one of my first stories about it mentioned the ideal gas law, PV equals NRT. But what I'm saying- The temperature drops, the air pressure drops. And they had no
2: idea. What I'm saying is, I mean, the letter that was written to the Patriots the next day that was in the Wells Report, and then everything else that was said, to me, it was said by people who were absolutely, totally unfamiliar- with the ideal gas Absolutely. Slot. And so that's where it started from. And if we can talk journalism for a second. So Chris Mortensen writes what he writes, okay? And then I ask people who I know, and without getting too specific, I ask people who I know, and they basically said Mortensen is right. So I just said, League people confirm that Mortensen is you know, is right, and I truly believe, and I will always believe this, that all of this happened because the NFL, and again, you know what, Mike, we will never know, I don't think, we'll never know if Tom Brady ever told those guys who, you know, the guys who the Patriots conveniently dismissed, we'll, we'll never know if, what exactly Tom Brady said to them, I don't think. Maybe Here's what one I think. Day, Here's but, what I think. Yeah.
0: I think something was happening. Something fishy was happening based upon the text messages that right. were ultimately uncovered. Right. But, but I don't believe that on the day in question, the AFC championship game played in January of 2015, that they actually did it. And wouldn't the ultimate irony be that if, whether it was just Stremski or McNally, it was McNally. McNally took the bag of balls into the bathroom. Bathroom, What if he got in there? Because what happened that day was the Seahawks-Packers game was in overtime. The official's locker room was more boisterous and crowded and full than it ordinarily is. That's where, supposedly, he would take the top off of the footballs. He couldn't do it there that day because there were too many people in the room. He takes it to the bathroom. He puts the bag on the ground, and he thinks... How am I ever going to do this the right way in here? And they probably have cameras all over here. Wouldn't the ultimate irony be if he didn't do it that day and he just took the balls out? Because if you combine the operation of the ideal gas law with tampering with the I don't footballs... I think he did it. If you combine ideal gas law and tampering, what are the numbers going to be? They're going to be exactly what they leaked to Mortensen. Yeah. And, and Mike, it was,
2: Mike, it, Mike, you think about this for a second. The 11 balls they have the average of those 11 balls was 11.30 exactly. And what was in the Wells report is they said it could be between 11.32 and 11 point something. And that that would be according to the weather that day and the ideal gas law, that's what they should be. So in essence, that's almost exactly what they were. And that to me just says to me, first of all, as somebody who we both know very well said to me a week after this started, this should have been a $25,000 fine and a strongly worded letter to say, if you're doing something, cut it out. Don't do it anymore. But And that plus the fact, Andy Benoit of the MMQB has this great thing. He goes, why in the world would that be an advantage? You know, come on. When I It's told, not I, an advantage. When, when when I told my wife about it in the
0: very <laughs> early days, she said, now what's going on with this Patriots footballs thing? I said, well, they think that the Patriots took air out of the footballs. And she said, well, why would they want to do that? I said, because the ball's easier to grip. What? How, why do they want the ball easier to grip? Because it's easier to throw. And she said, well, isn't that what they want? I mean, yeah. isn't yeah. that the idea of this sport? Yeah. You want to be able to throw the football? And that gets back to the whole 12.5 to 13.5. They don't know where that rule came from. It's just yeah. always been there. Yeah. It was something they had never enforced. They had never been curious about. They had never given it a second thought. And all of a sudden,
2: it becomes one of the most important indicators of integrity in the game. It, and, and then when they didn't release it last year, after the year, when they don't release what the measurements were on the spot test— That just said to me, you know what it said to me? It said to me that on that day in Foxborough, when the balls were supposed to go down between like 1 and 1.5 or whatever they were supposed to go down, when they were supposed to go down that, okay, if that had been refuted in all of the measurements over the 2015 season, they would have released it. But it wasn't refuted. It was confirmed. So when it was confirmed, they said, okay, we're just going to let this go the way it is. And we're going to give some gobbledygook explanation, which Roger Goodell gave. That was, to me, just, it was faulty.
0: The last thing they can afford to have happen is numbers to get out showing that the footballs dipped between 12.5. And that those numbers would be anything remotely similar to what they were that day. And I'm sure that if anybody is still listening to this at this point, they get a (laughs) lifetime (laughs) subscription to profootballtalk.com. (laughs) <laughs>
2: because All right, the
0: audience can't get enough talk about Deflategate.
2: <laughs> well, let me tell you, in six states, people will be listening. <laughs> Mike Flory, I really appreciate you taking all the time. We could do a seven-part podcast, but the only thing is you and I would be the only ones who would care. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for joining me, and uh, good luck to you and Pro Football Talk.
0: Peter, I appreciate it. I've always enjoyed the support over the years. I missed working with you this year. Every Sunday we had some fun together, sitting in the room, quoting Seinfeld back and forth and watching football, and uh, it's great to get a chance to spend some time with you. Thanks, Mike.
2: You're listening to the MMQB podcast. My thanks to Matt Ryan and Mike Florio. You know, I've always enjoyed knowing Mike Florio. He's an outsider. He likes it that way. And I think that helps him in his business. Anyway, a few things about the business of coaching right now in the National Football League. You know, it's interesting to watch the climate around this year's Coaching class, this year's head coaching class, sort of change almost week by week. It started a couple of weeks ago with six job openings right after the end of the regular season. And what I found most interesting is that there was not one candidate this year that everybody said, We got to go chase that guy. So as it has developed over the last, say, 10 days, I think one of the interesting things that has happened. And I'll I'll use the words of one team executive who has been flying around the country and talking to, as of now, about seven or eight candidates. And he told me on Sunday night that this is such a fantastic thing for us this year. We don't feel like we're in a rush. We feel like even if the top guy on our list right now got taken, we're okay with it because we're getting to know a bunch of different coaches, and a bunch of coaches have surprised us. I can tell you one thing about this process that I really like this year. When there are no slam dunk coaches, then teams might be more inclined to be interested in going to talk to, and I'm going to give you a candidate right now, a guy like Anthony Lynn. Now, you may recognize that name. He was the interim coach of the Buffalo Bills at the end of the season after they let Rex Ryan go, and he had been the offensive coordinator for most of this season after Ryan fired Greg Roman near the beginning of the year. So here's a guy who's been a running back coach, an offensive coordinator, and now a head coach. And he's had a chance to sit down now and talk to several teams, and one of the things that one executive told me on Sunday night is, you know, I don't think we ever would have in in another climate where we were really in a competitive mode, I don't think we would have talked to Anthony Lynn. And he said, I'm not saying we're going to hire Anthony Lynn, but he said we really, really liked him. And I have always maintained this about the coaching carousel, that teams rush into it headlong without really the benefit of thought. So now where do we stand on the coaching carousel as we sit here in in between wildcard weekend and divisional weekend. I think from what my sources have told me that Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator of the New England Patriots is a very hot commodity and he most likely after interviewing on Saturday this past Saturday Uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars at 7 a.m., with the Los Angeles Rams at noon, and with the San Francisco 49ers at 4 p.m., all in Foxborough. I mean, how about that? You have three job interviews. They each last between three and four hours. You got to be sharp. You got to be on your game. And bang, bang, bang. You do them right after uh, one, right after another. And in the span of 12 and a half hours, You've just got to be on your game for the whole time. But anyway, I know McDaniels impressed uh, a couple of those teams quite a bit. I think one of the other guys, and it's no secret, Kyle Shanahan, the offensive coordinator of the Falcons, is also a hot commodity. I think that the Denver Broncos, uh, who are interviewing Vance Joseph, the defensive coordinator of the Miami Dolphins this week, What's interesting about that interview and about everyone's very high regard for Vance Joseph is that his defense wasn't very good this year. They were 29th rated in the NFL in their only playoff game, obviously, on Sunday. The Dolphins went to Pittsburgh and got absolutely shredded on their first three drives. I think 90, 85, and 80-yard drives for touchdowns on the Steelers' first three possessions. So, you know, I think that although Vance Joseph is very highly regarded, he's going to have to walk in there to these interviews and say, you know, here's why I wasn't quite able to turn around this defense yet, but here would be my plans for your team. I think Mike Shanahan likes him because he could fit into their defensive structure right away. The big question in Denver is who would run the offense if Vance Joseph came in. That's something that is going to have to be taken care of because they got two young quarterbacks, Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch. They're likely not to trade for Tony Romo in the offseason. So I think Denver is an interesting place to watch. And finally, one other interesting job, I think, is the San Diego Chargers. And the Chargers are interesting because in all likelihood, it's not certain But the most likely scenario, I am told, is that the Chargers will play in the facility in Carson, California, formerly known as the Home Depot Center. And I forget what the name of it is right now, but it's that 28,000-seat soccer stadium, basically. And the Chargers, who obviously are leaning toward moving to Los Angeles, I think if they do move to Los Angeles, it's going to be hard to have another lame duck year in San Diego. So I, I think that at least as of a couple of weeks ago, the thought internally was that there was a very good chance they would move north. And, and look, you say, well, geez, then why would anybody take this job? They're going to be orphans of the storm for two years, playing in this little bandbox of a stadium. Why would a coach want to coach there? And I say, two names, Philip and Rivers. You get the last maybe three or four years of Philip Rivers' very productive career, and that's the only job right now where you have a playoff quarterback who is in the saddle who you could win with opening day, you know. And you know the negative thing is that you're going to be transient for a couple of years. So I think that is one of those things that you know a good coach and an aggressive coach, an ambitious coach would look at that as, hey, this is an opportunity for me to have a good quarterback and so I can compete in every game. We got two very good edge rushers in Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. That is actually a very intriguing job, but your division's very good and you're going to be living out of a suitcase for two years. Do you really think that you can win big when you're the number 4 team in your division there right now? So no perfect jobs out there, no perfect candidates. Let's see where the carousel ends up in the next seven days. Thanks to my guests, Matt Ryan of the Atlanta Falcons and Mike Florio of NBC and Pro Football Talk. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Drew Brees, Adam Schefter, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts on our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek and Blue Apron. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a Digital Media production. Find your voice. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...
1: Oh, I need a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera.
2: <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that happens.
1: So start clean with Clorox.